Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of IT. I'm your host, Sarah Seiber. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and this episode dives into some of the complex issues around mental health, such as the impact-related issues like drug abuse have on prolonged and continuing mental health disorders. The National Institute on Drug Abuse is one agency working on a number of areas that are supporting and ultimately combating abuse of drugs and addiction. The agency's director, Dr. Nora Volkov, who joined us on HealthCast last year, examines the latest research and understanding of public mental health and substance abuse initiatives. So let's jump right in. Because people diagnosed with mental illness are more likely to also suffer from a substance use disorder, also known as comorbidity, Volkov explains some of the common risk factors at play here. Yes, indeed, this has been something that has intrigued very much uh, clinicians and scientists because it is so frequent to see comorbid conditions where you have mental illness and a substance use disorder. And from the science, we know that there are three factors, there are three ways by which the comorbidities can occur. One of them, which is, all of them are very, very relevant, but one of them from the perspective of the science and, and discovery is the recognition that they are common factors that increase your risk for either a mental disorder or a substance use disorder. For example, there may be genetic variants that make you more vulnerable to both of those conditions. So if you have the gene, it's not that it's only going to manifest itself behaviorally in one, it could also manifest itself in the other or both of them combined. A perfect example, for example, of a common factor that underlines both of these diseases or cluster of diseases is stress, and particularly during childhood and adolescence, socially adverse environments, which are extraordinarily stressful, increase the risk both for mental illness and for a substance use disorders. So common factors that increase risk uh, are likely to um, underlie some of the very frequent comorbidity that we observe in the population. Another component has to do with you developing mental illness and particularly as a young person and, and not being recognized that there is an emerging mental disorder and you not feeling right. That may put you at greater risk of experimenting with drugs as a means to actually, even if it's unconscious, to try to automedicate a state of distress brought about by the emerging mental illness. And this is important clinically because it highlights how crucial it is to do early recognition of emerging mental disorders. First of all, because by being able to do early recognition, you may uh, be able to actually stop and, and do an intervention that minimizes severity and in some instances may even prevent a full-blown emergence of the disorder. But you're also going to be preventing this individual. It's a prevention intervention for substance use disorder. Because if you treat them, if you intervene, then that individual may not have the need to actually take drugs. And then the third road that can lead you to the comorbidity is you have, uh, you basically have a substance use disorder when being exposed chronically to cannabis or to alcohol and or other drugs, uh, opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine. These drugs actually change the brain in ways that, that it make 
the systems that respond to stress and to mood much more reactive. And that leads you, puts you at greater risk of ending up, for example, with high levels of anxiety or with high levels of uh, depression dysphoria because of the changes that drugs are doing to those circuits that underline that reactivity to stress and that underline your mood. And so chronic exposure to drugs can mechanistically lead to a mental disorder. So these are the three different ways by that explain why these conditions are so frequently, frequently comorbid. Early recognition is important as it could help prevent or stop emergence of a full disorder. As such, NIDA continues to conduct new studies to prevent, detect, or treat these conditions, especially in adolescence. Well, I would say that perhaps the most transformative uh, study that is ongoing to try to actually lead us to understanding um, how is it that these comorbid conditions emerge in adolescence, which is when you see most of this, the presentation, the clinical presentation. The clinical study that jumps into my brain is the Adolescent Brain Development and Cognition, or goes by the acronym of the ABCD study. And in this study, we've actually are funding researchers across the United States to do a longitudinal evaluation of close to 12,000 initial children that were recruited at age 9 to 10, uh, starting five years ago, and they are being periodically evaluating as they actually transition into adulthood. And this will give us a unique opportunity because it's a prospective study to actually identify what biomarkers, for example, based on brain imaging or on other biomarkers related to cognition or behavioral development may alert us that there is a higher risk for underlying a mental disorder or a substance use disorder and understanding them before they actually emerge can then lead us to facilitate the development of interventions that can prevent them. So um, the ABCD study will provide us with knowledge that will be extraordinarily valuable in terms of helping advance our understanding of these comorbid conditions. And even though the study is just actually was started to recruit five years ago, so it has completed its second evaluation almost, and it's going now on the third wave of evaluation for brain, for brain imaging, it has already resulted on some very relevant publications. For example, it actually identified uh, the consequences of having a family history of psychiatric disorder in terms of how that influences brain development, or how, for example, the influence of drug use during pregnancy by the mother actually affects brain development and the emergence of uh, early signs of what may lead to an early incipient mental disorder. So this is, in my brain and my estimation, one of the most impactful studies in terms of helping us advance at that understanding, because you need knowledge to try to understand then who, how to, and in whom to in, 
intervene to do a a tailored intervention on the basis of the unique risks that a, a child may have. And again, highlighting how important it is to focus in terms of uh, prevention and early treatment to focus on children and adolescents. So this is the, the one that's most important. We have, we are, uh, uh, we have traditionally funded multiple groups that have evaluated prevention intervention, prevention research, aim at children and adolescents and their families to understand what models of prevention intervention result in better outcomes as these children grow up into adulthood. And these studies, for example, have shown that those prevention interventions not only decrease the risk of drug experimentation and use, but they also improve outcomes related to mental disorders. So prevention research is a very important aspect of what we do because it's important to also develop models for which there is evidence that the intervention will be valuable. And so the, the prevention research has uh, is ongoing and we expect that it will be informed by the data that is emerging from ABCD. And we're hoping to launch again in partnership with multiple institutes like the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, we hope now to also launch an equivalent study but that is initiated in infancy, which is important because we do know that uh, many of the impactful effects that will manifest later on in mental illness during adolescence are occurring during those early childhood years. Recently adding to the challenges of these disorders is the current COVID-19 pandemic and the impact it has had in drug abuse and subsequent mental health issues. Yeah, no, and in fact, now there's the data from that ended up in October 2020 was released and it showed a 30% mortality, increasing mortality over the 12 months before. So um, we know it has been very devastating. It has exacerbated the number of people that are dying from overdoses. And when you look at it, I mean, because the other side about it is that we've seen that individuals with substance use disorder, as well as individuals with mental illness, are at higher risk of um, getting infected with COVID. And they're also at higher risk of negative outcomes, including death if they do get infected. So it has been devastating for uh, individuals suffering both from mental illness and substance use disorders. In the field of the opioid overdose deaths, basically researchers have been looking at to try to understand what is driving these dramatic increases. We know that uh, with COVID pandemic, uh, the overburdening of the healthcare system as a result of the need to take care of patients that were infected decrease the support uh, that existed for treatment and, and follow-up and management of individuals with an opioid use disorder, including, for example, access to emergency departments, which is a place where is one of, of the infrastructure that exists in our country to help us recover people that have overdosed and, and actually initiate them into treatment so that they can be um, prevented from overdosing again. So that is one. The, the decreases in access to healthcare were very detrimental. Also, um, the decrease in community support systems, such as the syringe programs um, that 
provided not only access to uh, syringes and other equipment, but also the very much needed social support systems that people that are trying to control their drug taking and stay in recovery are needed. And finally, another important factor that has been devastating is that we had seen already in 2019, before COVID-19 hit us, that the type of drugs that were responsible for the deaths in our country were shifting more and more towards synthetic opioids, predominantly fentanyl, and some of its analogs, but predominantly fentanyl. And we have also started to see that more and more deaths from overdoses were actually identifying multiple drugs on board. So it wasn't just pure fentanyl. It was fentanyl with, with heroin or fentanyl with benzodiazepines. And over the past four years, fentanyl with methamphetamine and fentanyl with cocaine. And that has exacerbated during the COVID crisis. So we have seen an increase in the actually exposures of people to these synthetic opioids that are extraordinarily dangerous. So your risk of dying is much higher if you do consume fentanyl than if you consume heroin in general, because fentanyl is overall 30 to 50 times uh, more potent than heroin itself. And I'm speaking about pure heroin. So the risks are very high. And two, because the, um, the dealers can make so much more profit when they sell fentanyl than when they sell heroin, or even when they sell something like cocaine. What they are doing is they are lacing drugs that are more expensive with fentanyl in order to be able to uh, provide a lower dose from those drugs and yet have a product that will be very, very active. And that also is extraordinarily dangerous because people that are not the per se favoring the use of opioids that like cocaine or methamphetamine and don't have any tolerance developed, like someone that may be taking heroin, are at even increased risk of mortality. So these are three major factors that are driving the, uh, the increase in, in mortality. And then there's a, another fourth one that pertains to all of what we're doing, and I think that we, we as a country need to be aware that this is a factor that will have long-lasting effects, and that's the stress from the pandemic. Dr. Volkov touched on some of the underserved populations since they often have limited access to care and treatment options in general. To dive deeper into these inequities, Volkov discussed the roadblocks in receiving treatment, as well as how NIDA is working to improve access to care. Where do I start? Oh, my God. I actually um, sort of, uh, let's start by saying that because uh, individuals with substance use disorder and mental illness in general tend to have um, lower socioeconomical backgrounds due to the fact that, that the disease process itself may interfere with their ability to be, because sometimes stigma to be hired into positions and then from the healthcare system to even actually address their needs. So that has led to a very heterogeneous support system for their healthcare needs uh, that include their treatment of the mental illness and the substance use disorder. And as we know that uh, individuals that could benefit for treatment and certainly in the substance use disorder field, is basically only 18% of them get access to treatment. And that's just treatment in general. 
I haven't even touched the notion of quality care, because that's an aspect that neither has been actually struggling and promoting research that can help us develop guidelines that to evaluate uh, quality care in the treatment of substance use disorder, which includes the ability to provide quality care for comorbid mental illnesses, because they are so, so comorbid. But this is not in any way routinely done. And even the, in the case, for example, where the opioid crisis, that we know that one of the most important and powerful tools that we have to control it is to actually give access to medications for opioid use disorder. Even that one, where we have it, where we have the tools, where the data, we don't need any more data to show that it is a highly impactful, they are not being implemented. And when they are implemented, they are implemented with a lot of roadblocks and caveats. And two, this implementation varies enormously by states because the states um, actually oversee their Medicaid programs. And um, in the case of uh, substance use disorder, most of the treatments are taken over by Medicaid. And also some of these uh, are also the case for mental illnesses. So we need to start by recognizing that we need to provide access to high quality care for mental illness, substance use disorder, and the comorbid conditions. That this, this is something that we should aim to do. And again, as I was pointing out, now with COVID pandemic, we, as a country, we have to be aware that the severity of the problem will continue to increase. I mean, it's not going to go down. And so we need to be proactive, provide that treatment. I also think it is fundamental that we ha highlight prevention. And particularly now that we're seeing all of these very adverse things that have happened to all of us and some people because of their support systems, their genetics, their background history are more or less vulnerable. And being able to provide prevention interventions to minimize exacerbation and um, or triggering of a substance use disorder, a comorbid condition, or a mental illness. So I would like to emphasize that that's what we as NIDA, as an institute, and in partnership again with our colleagues in other institutes at the NIH, are, are aiming to do to generate models that show what are the best strategies for prevention and treatment. As Dr. Volkov mentioned earlier in the episode, opioid overdose deaths are dramatically increasing. To combat this threat, NIH launched the Helping to End Addiction Long-Term Initiative, or HEAL, to create new solutions that could help treat individuals with opioid use disorders. By partnering with other agencies, NIDA has accelerated research to advance medication development and expand the clinical trials network. Well, the HEL initiative, which was possible because uh, Congress allocated a total of $50 million annually to actually the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institute of Neurological Diseases, half 50% and 50%, and the latter was to develop science that can help uh, treat pain because that's what triggered the opioid crisis. And this is another very frequent comorbid condition. Uh, in fact, not just with substance use disorders, but also highly comorbid with mental illness, particularly mood disorders. So um, the, the HEAL initiative, though, this money is has an oversight that 
is at the level of the office of the director in order to maximize the likelihood that uh, we bring expertise from other institutes that in the past may have not paid attention to the field of substance use disorder and particularly opioid use disorder in this case and pain. So it has enabled that, it has facilitated uh, interactions between institutes. For us, uh, it has given us the resources to accelerate medication development, which we have basically been one of our top priorities. But because of limitation of funding, we could we were only able to fund a very small percentage of meritorious projects. Similarly, it has helped us to expand our clinical trial network, which is a network that NIDA created 20 years ago in order to actually evaluate the effectiveness of treatment interventions for substance use disorder. And again, it has done ex- both of these initiatives on the NIDA medication development and the clinical trial network have helped enormously expand our the way that we deal with substance use disorder, particularly within the context of uh, medical disorder and in the with the involvement of the healthcare system. But we were very limited uh, in terms of the number of projects that we could tackle on the clinical trial network too. And so the HEAL initiative and the resources that came with it have made it possible for us to expand it. So, uh, and as a result of that, is uh, has accelerated discovery. So for example, let me give you an example. The clinical trial network had shown that uh, the initiation of medications for opioid use disorder particularly buprenorphine, in the emergency department significantly improved the outcomes of patients. But that was done in in few emergency departments. So now with the money that comes from the hill, we can actually test these across a network of emergency departments, which is important to do because there's tremendous variability and heterogeneity. And in the process, we can also learn what are the best practices. Another thing that it has enabled us to do is to actually, uh, NIDA has a long tradition of working with the justice system to actually develop models of care and treatment for individuals that are in jails. And while they are in jails and when they are released back into the community, and we have generated a network for investigators between justice settings, jails, and academic centers. And now with the funds that come from Kiel, we have been able to also markedly expand that network and therefore be able to accelerate um, models of care and to disseminate practices that already are showing much better outcomes overall in terms of re-entry of people that have a problem with substance use disorder, but also in terms of helping them um, recover and uh, achieve sobriety and actually in terms of being able to insert themselves into their social systems and and into their work. So, Moving forward, Volkov emphasized the importance society has in coming together to remove stigma associated with mental illness and substance use disorders. This starts with communication. I remember when I was a little girl and people were afraid to say that they had cancer because it was a stigmatizing disease. And and that's not the case anymore. And so what has changed? Number one, education of the people and an understanding, a very important understanding of the disease. And the third element is uh, treatments. And so those three components, 
actually, and I should have started understanding the basis of that disease because that then leads you to better communication and helping people understand it better. But the element of treatment is crucial. And I think that another big example in terms of how fast the disease was stigmatized was with HIV. And in the case of HIV, an extraordinary component that accelerated the removal of stigma was for everyone to see that the disease can be uh, cured, and uh, but not cured, but treated. And so that removes immediately the fear. And that is an aspect that is so very, very relevant. And in the case of mental illnesses and substance use disorder and comorbidity, there is still a lack of understanding by people about what um, what are these diseases. I mean, we know, I mean, I think that in general most people are starting to just agree that they are diseases, but their understanding is much more limited than what we have for other diseases like diabetes or hypertension. So we. One of the aims in, in terms of what we think is certainly at night, the important is how to communicate that, that understanding in ways that are not dumbing it down, but that are comprehensive for everyone and that can lead them to empathizing to get a grab of what it may be. And then the third element, the one of developing treatments, because nothing... Uh, does better at convincing someone that, um, say, for example, addiction is a disease than to actually demonstrate that you can treat it like you treat any other medical condition and you can treat it and people can recover. So that's one of the things that we can actually very much do, all of us, to destigmatize mental illness and substance use disorders. As NIDA works to provide better care to people affected by mental illness and substance use disorder, and continues its research to gain a better understanding of these conditions. The agency continues to partner with other organizations across government to enhance its well-rounded understanding of mental disease and addictions. That's all with HealthCast for now. Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe with your favorite podcast app or listen to more at governmentciomedia.com. Until next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.